0: This is the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on W.O.O.C.L.P. one hundred five point three FM Troy, excuse me, W.O.O.S.L.P. ninety eight point nine FM Schenectady, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. I'm Caitlin.
1: In America, this on to, on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. First, Mark Dunley talks with Connor Chang about the recent complaint filed with the Massachusetts Attorney General. Then Elizabeth Press gives an update about the Thevenin civil lawsuit. After that, Mark Dunley has a conversation with Jessica Pino Godspeed, Goodspeed of Hunger Solutions, New York. Next, hear about the recycling project for the city of Troy, part of the act series. Finally, Jeremy cloud spoke with Miss Austin Gates, the Animal Protective Foundation in Glenville with the recent increase in pet adoption. But first, here are some headlines.
0: Residents living near the, hazard, uh, the near the Norlite hazardous waste incinerator in Cahos have filed a lawsuit against Norlite and its parent company, Trade-A-B, over toxic si- silica dust emissions. For the past 30 years, residents have been complaining about toxic silica dust emissions from Norlite, and for over 30 years. And for 30 years, the state DEC has not solved the ongoing problem. Attorney Philip Oswald filed the class action lawsuit on behalf of the residents in the city of Cohoes, the village of Green Island, and the city of Waterville, with a class size of 5,000. Residents of the neighboring Saratoga sites, housing units, and the surrounding communities have repeatedly, continually experienced the deposit of carcinogenic fugitive dust emissions on their property, The toxic silica. Dust emissions are carried from the Neuralite facility in sur- into surrounding communities.
1: This November, this November, voters will decide whether the state constitution should be amended to include a right to clean air and water, as well as a healthy environment. The state legislature approved the change in two different legislative sessions, so it now goes to voters in New- November. The New York State business council is opposing it as a boon to trial lawyers. Supporters note that the court will guide the implementation of the provision. They also note that having the right to a healthy environment in the state constitution could also stop the practice of mainly putting polluting industries near or in disadvantaged communities.
0: The Times Union reports that Albany County Health Commissioner is urging individuals who are still undecided about getting vaccinated to do so. Nothing that the vaccines are the quickest path to normalcy and critical as the case of coronavirus have begun to plateau and even rise in other parts of the state, nation and the globe.
1: The Daily Gazette reports that no students learning in a remote only model will be forced to take statewide math and English tests. This spring, but will have the chance to participate if they want to, according to new state testing guidance released in this week. While state officials pushed for a federal waiver to cancel all state tests, federal education officials have indicated they won't grant such waivers, and so the tests must go on.
0: The Gazette reports that after a two hour meeting, the Schenectady City Council's Public Safety Commission approved the city's 24 point police reform plan. There was a lot of discussions around the Councilwoman Marin Porterfield's objection to the proposed policy departing from the previous term, use of force, which she felt increased leeway an officer has in implying force to a suspect's head. However, she failed to gain support of her colleagues. Porterfield also called for the proposal reform to plan plan to outright prohibit an officer from applying force with their knee or body weight to a person's head, even if that officer is in the heat of a struggle. Community groups clergy have complained about the proposal did not go so far enough. Uh,
1: Students can safely sit just three feet apart in the classroom as long as they wear masks, but should be kept the usual six feet away from one another at sporting events, assemblies, lunch, or chorus practice, the Centers for Disease and Control Prevention, said Friday in relaxing its COVID-19 guidelines.
0: The Gazette reports that the former workers at St. Clair Hospital are hopeful that the recent approved stimulus package could amend to the aged former workers of St. Clair's who found out in 2018 they'd be left with no, with little to no pension. First segment of the day, Connor Chang is a residence of Bethlehem, New York, who is part of the Fossil Fuel Divest Harvard. The group recently filed a complaint with the Massachusetts Attorney attorney general's, urging to to take action against Harvard for violating the charity law and refusing to divest from fossil fuels. With Mark Dunley for the Hudson-Mohawk Radio Network.
2: We're talking with Connor Chung, who is with Fossil Fuel Divest Harvard. And I asked them to be on because uh, recently uh, the group had filed a complaint with the state attorney general's office arguing that the uh, refusal of, of Harvard to divest its, its funds from fossil fuels um, violated some state rules. But, uh, you know, maybe Connor, uh, kind of just maybe before we start off, you know, what what uh, has fossil fuel divest Harvard about and, and how has the campaign been uh, progressing before you took this uh, complaint action? Sure, Uh, thanks for having me on, Mark. So uh, I'm a member of Fossil Fuel Divest Harvard, which is a coalition of members of the
3: Harvard community that for nearly a decade has argued that when the planet's on fire, it is wrong to stand with the arsonists. We're calling on Harvard to divest its nearly $42 billion endowment from the fossil fuel industry and to reinvest that in a more just and stable future. And for those years, we've done all sorts of tactics. We've, We've marched, we've protested, we've petitioned, even stormed a football field the problem is that as the climate crisis gets more and more dire, Harvard has continued refusing to act. This is bad for the institution. I mean, fossil fuels are a horrible investment and it's bad for the planet. Harvard is lending uh, social and economic capital to the industry most obsessed with the destruction of our futures. So that's why this semester in an age where more traditional means of, of advocacy might not have been an option, our group decided to go down on a new track. Escalating our argument to say that Harvard's fossil fuel investments aren't just immoral; they're illegal. That was the genesis of this complaint we filed with Massachusetts Attorney General Maura Healey, in which we say that Harvard's year, Harvard's years-long refusal to uh, divest its endowment from fossil fuels constitutes a violation of its duties under state nonprofit law.
2: So, how, how would it violate the state, uh, you know, nonprofit law? What does that have to do with, uh, you know, their funds?
3: Absolutely. So in two thousand and nine, uh, Massachusetts adopted what's known as the Uniform Prudent Management of Institutional Funds Act, or UPMIFA. And uh, under this, Harvard is bound by kind of three overarching duties. there's the there's the uh, prudence standard. so the you need to invest in the interests of the you need to invest uh, you know with an eye towards uh, protecting the the well-being of the institution and its funds there's the lo- there's the duty of loyalty. So you need to do so in the best interest of the institution. Um, and there's the charitable purpose doctrine uh, that you need to invest with an eye towards kind of a broader social mission. And it's these three things we argue that are violated by investments in fossil fuels. So to kind of walk through them. Firstly, uh, duty of prudence. Fossil fuels are not just a morally bad investment. They're a financially bad investment. Uh, the world's largest oil companies lost nearly 90 billion dollars of value in the first three quarters of 2020 alone so continued investment in this industry is a losing proposition and out of line with Harvard's fiduciary duties then there's the the duty of loyalty that's the one acting in the best interests of the institution as a whole we argue this is undermined by a variety of, of uh, conflict of interest a number of members of Harvard Harvard's governing board for example have deep uh, financial ties to the fossil fuel industry um, the 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 lawyer currently representing Exxon in legal battle with the Massachusetts Attorney General, Ted Wells, is a member of our governing board. Uh, two others are private equity CEOs whose, uh, whose um, private equity firms have invested in pipelines. Um, and finally, and most importantly, is the charitable purpose doctrine. So this is a higher level of scrutiny that goes beyond what most other investors face. It applies specifically to charitable nonprofit investors. and. It says that it is a a fundamental duty to invest with the uh, broader social mission of that institution in mind. And Harvard's charitable purpose is the advancement and education of young people. We argue that there's no way this is compatible with investing in an industry that's spent years sowing doubt about climate science, lobbying against meaningful climate action, even attacking Harvard's own faculty. Uh, The extraction of fossil fuels damages the world's natural systems, disproportionately harms youth, poor people, communities of color, and thus profiting from such destructive activities violates Harvard's obligation under the law along with its moral duties.
2: You know, I I saw read in an article that a similar complaint or strategy was tried with uh, Cornell University, I guess in 2019, and and that actually um, you know resulted eventually in, in Cornell uh, deciding recently to divest. Have you had any response yet from the uh, attorney general's office to your complaint?
3: No response yet. We just uh, filed a couple days ago, so we we expect that they'll be evaluating it. But it's it's good that you mentioned Cornell because that's a really inspiring case. Because for years, students at Cornell had argued for divestment, had argued that it was that that. If, if it's wrong to profit from the destruction of the planet, it's wrong to invest in that destruction. And for years, Cornell administration failed to listen. They continued to justify investment in an industry destroying its students' futures. And they changed their mind, thanks in part to student activism, thanks in part to faculty activism, and thanks in part to uh, a similar legal, legal argument uh, that members of uh, Climate Justice Cornell had filed with New York uh, Attorney General Tish James. Um, so we're excited for this. We we think there's a, a clear case that Harvard is uh, in violation of its duties under the law. And we, we look forward to uh, the Attorney General's office evaluating and hopefully pushing Harvard towards climate justice. I mean, we believe that it, these powerful institutions should be leaders in the fight against climate crisis. That's why it's so especially painful that they continue investing in an in industry that 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 stands most to, to benefit from uh, an age of climate breakdown and that's why we think it's important to use all available tactics including strategies like this to push for change
2: i I also noticed that back in uh, 2014 students had tried to sue uh, Harvard over the uh, issue of divestment but uh, unfortunately the case was uh, thrown out for you know saying students did not lack the legal st- stand in the challenge, but you know, since you've been doing this campaign or students have been doing this campaign for quite a few years now, you know, what has been the, uh, you know, reaction to, from the, you know, the leadership at Harvard as to why they will not divest?
3: Yeah, so um, in regards to that uh, 2014 effort, as you mentioned, um, it it was an effort by some students to compel uh, climate action from Harvard through the courts. And as you mentioned, it it was not, it was not dismissed on the facts, it was dismissed on the technical issue of standing, of who has the authority to bring such claims. One of the reasons we chose this strategy uh, is because um, standing isn't an issue for the attorney general. Uh, state law is very clear that she has automatic standing in cases dealing with uh, with uh, charitable institutions. Um, so our hopes are that with this complaint, um, which is not a lawsuit, which is a request for investigation, uh, we can push AG Healy to, to uh, take action and enforce the laws uh, of the Commonwealth. As for your broader question about the response of the administration, well, unfortunately, it's just not been clear that they're willing to back up their words with action. So Harvard will talk about the the need to act on climate, about the way in which institutions should be leaders, Um, but they'll refuse the advice of majorities of the student body, um, majorities of their faculty, uh, uh, critical masses of alums uh, when they continue to call for investment in the fossil fuel industry. They, they have a couple of responses. They like to say, oh, well, divestment would be political and we shouldn't politicize the endowment. And our response there is sure, divestment would be political but so is investment. So is investment in industry that, that, spends, that spends massive amounts of money each year to lobby against climate action. Sometimes they like to claim that it's best to have a seat at the table to, to use shareholder engagement to change these companies from the inside. And there's just no clear evidence that that's effective. The problem is that, that they're, they're, as their arguments fall short, they, they, they show near, no clear understanding of the urgency with which we must act, um, with which Harvard must act, and with which the world must act. And that's why we think tactics like this, alongside everything else we're doing as a campaign and will continue to do, are super important in the fight to bring powerful institutions like Harvard that have an outsized, outsized power and thus outsized social responsibility um, to the right side of history.
2: So we've been talking with uh, Connor Chung from Fossil Fuel Divest Harvard. Um, any uh, you know suggestions you have for people to, to take action in the next 15 seconds?
3: All right, the climate crisis is the defining issue of our time and that's why it's important to fight on all fronts. Um, whether it's local advocacy, whether it's advocacy at uni- university, uh, workplace, uh, government, it is absolutely essential that we act and that's why uh, As young people come together, we have hope. We have hope to secure a more just and stable future. And that's why it's really exciting to be a part of movements like that.
2: Well, thank you, Connor. And this has been uh, Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Radio.
1: You just heard from HMM's correspondent, Mark Dunley. He spoke with Connor Chung, a resident of Bethlehem, New York, who is part of Fossil Fuel diverse, Diverse Harvard. Next on March, on March 15, the Second Court of Appeals rejected the city of Troy's appeal in the Devon Family Civil law- Lawsuit. This means that the case is on track for trial.
0: W O O C producer Elizabeth Press, check back in with the lawyer Lauren Shanks about the significance of this ruling.
4: Today we have Lori Shanks, Professor Emerita at Albany Law School, here to give us an up about the developments in the Edson Thevenin family civil suit. Lori Shanks, welcome back to the Hudson Mohawk magazine.
5: Thanks so much for having me.
4: The appellate court ruled that the civil suit with Edson Thevenin's family is on track to go to trial. Can you tell us what happened this week in the second circuit court of appeals?
5: Sure. Well, let's just step back for a moment. So Magistrate uh, Dan Stewart said that it was not a matter that could be determined just by a motion. So in many civil cases, if uh, the facts are not in dispute, but there is a legal issue that is determinative, then the court might say, look, we're not going to waste everybody's time, jurors, lawyers, clients, if in the end, there's just a legal decision to be made. Um, But if there are facts in dispute, then it it is for the jury, it's within the jury's provenance to determine the facts. So what Magistrate Stewart said is there are contested facts in this case, and therefore he denied the motion to dismiss, which was really treated as a motion for summary judgment. So the city appealed and they said, look, you know, this is just a question about whether or not um, the police officer, Randall French, has immunity and whether or not the city has immunity. They do, let's not waste everyone's time, dismiss the case. So that was the argument that we talked about the last time I was here, um, where the plaintiff, uh, Mrs. Thevelin and her two children um, are arguing, their lawyer is arguing on their behalf that there are lots of facts in dispute. Um, And the lawyer for the city is saying no, there aren't. So the appellate court, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, agreed with the Thevolans and upheld Magistrate Stewart's uh, finding.
4: Were you surprised by this after hearing the oral
5: arguments? Were you surprised by how quickly it came in? What was your reaction? I was not surprised at the ruling. I was surprised at two things. One of the judges was pretty hostile to the Thevelin family's attorney, and I thought that he might dissent in the case. But as I mentioned the last time, you know, oral arguments are only one part of the proceeding. There are lots of papers that go in beforehand, citing other cases, citing the transcripts in this case. And it was very clear in my mind that there are lots of facts that are in dispute. This case is really about the credibility of the witnesses. I mean, it's sort of interesting in this case that not only is Mr. Thevelin dead because Um, he was shot, but Sergeant French died of COVID. So a lot of the testimony of Sergeant French will be um, by someone reading his deposition. But what the court both below and on appeal said is it will be up to the jury still to decide whether or not to give credence what Sergeant French said. We know that he wasn't telling the truth about at least some of the things and it will be up to the jury to say whether or not they believe him as to anything. Some of the witnesses have credibility problems of their own and it will be up to the jury to decide which of those witnesses to believe. So in the end they will have to decide what the facts are. So I was surprised that the one judge who seemed hostile uh, to the plaintiffs in the case did not dissent. And I think that it was very clear that this was not a case where a motion for summary judgment should have been granted. I was rather surprised at how quickly uh, the decision came out um, after the oral argument. So it seems to me that they had done a lot of the research beforehand, probably were pretty clear on what they were going to rule, um, had the oral argument to see if anybody's you know, mind was changed, um, and then put out the opinion really pretty quickly.
4: And so now that the opinion is out, we know that it will go to a jury trial.
5: We know that it will be set for trial. Um, and so now one of two things will happen is that um, there will be a settlement, and which means that the two sides will come together, perhaps with a mediator, perhaps with an arbitrator. The difference between mediation and arbitration is in a mediation, uh, there's just a person, usually a lawyer, sometimes a retired judge, who just talks to the both sides and tries to get an agreement about what would be a fair resolution. In an arbitration, it's actually binding. So you agree that the arbiter, you still make arguments uh, to the arbiter in an or, in order to settle it. But if the arbiter comes up with a conclusion, that's binding on both both of the parties. And if there's a mediation and it's not successful and there's no agreement for an arbitration, then it will go to trial.
4: Depending on those negotiations, uh, that will set the timeline for what will happen next.
5: Well, what will happen next is there will be there'll be discovery. Um, And what that means is that, you know, people, all of the witnesses will be um, deposed if they haven't already, there may be what are called interrogatories, which are just basically written questions. There may be experts who are hired. For sure, there'll be an expert to say, um, you know, what would the lifetime earnings of Mr. Thevelin be? Because, you know, that would be one of the types of damages. Um, There may be an expert witness to talk about the psychological impact on his two little boys losing their dad. There could be experts on accident reconstruction There's a dispute about whether or not the car was forced into like the the side of the uh, wall. Um, There will surely be ballistics experts because, you know, one of the big issues on appeal that they were talking about that the court said, yeah, there are factual issues is was French standing directly in front of the car uh, when he shot? And therefore, you know, there's an argument that he was terrified that Thevelin would crash into him. And in fact, he says that Thevelin did crash into him and pinned him. Uh, one of the witnesses says that he was to the side of the car. Um, my feeling is that probably there will be ballistics experts on both sides who have done an analysis of the entry and exit to determine the trajectory of the bullets, where they came from, and from what direction um, that will help the jury determine who's telling the truth.
4: Laurie Shanks, I wonder if you could just step back and explain the significance of police officers getting entitled to qualified immunity. And what does that phrase exactly mean?
5: What it means is is that if a police officer is doing their job as they were trained to do it, they can't be sued um, civilly because they are protected, because we expect them to make split-second decisions to protect us. So if a police officer sees someone beating someone else up or raping someone or holding someone hostage or something like that, they are entitled to use deadly force. There's been a decided shift to limit police immunity or qualified immunity. Um, And why it's qualified is because the police officer has to be acting within his job as a police officer.
4: Thank you for that, Lori Shanks. And we're about to be in April of 2021. Edson Thevenin was killed in April of 2016. It's five years after this incident. What does this do to draw out this case so far from April of 2016?
5: It's very difficult. And civil cases tend to last quite a long time. I wouldn't be at all shocked if it was two years, but it being, what is it, four years or five years, I think part of that is certainly attributable to um, the pandemic for two reasons. One, obviously, Sergeant French is you know a huge part of this trial, and he died from COVID-19. The courts were essentially shut down. Um, depositions really couldn't be taken except you know by Zoom. So I think it's very hard on everyone, which is is possibly why the case may settle. Um, the city certainly would like to limit its exposure or at least have an idea of exactly how much, um, you know, the settlement will be. You know, if you go to a jury, you it, surely never know what's going to happen. You know, I am certain that the fact that the George Floyd case just settled for $27 million has probably impacted on, on the city's belief of what, you know, the worst case scenario for them is
4: Great, and as we uh, wrap up here, uh, Lori Shanks, is there anything that uh, we haven't touched upon?
5: I think the only thing is, is that, you know, we might want to think about this in a broader way. You know, what does this? What do these kinds of um, cases show us in terms of, do we need to make some changes? You know, in all of the cities and in the capital district and throughout New York, there are task force, I was on one for Albany, you know, to think about what is the best way for the police and the community to get along? What's the safest way? What's the way that decreases crime without um, harming people? How does systemic racism uh, figure in? So I think that, you know, these individual cases can help us to to broaden out and look at the bigger picture of the issues that we have.
4: Lori Shanks, thank you again for joining us on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine.
5: Thank
1: you for inviting me. And that was lawyer Lori Shanks giving HMM's Elizabeth Press an update on the Thevenin family civil lawsuit.
0: For those just tuning in, I'm Kaylin, And
1: I'm Erica. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network.
0: This program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community for the community Mm -hmm. and is supported by independent donations. Thank you to all our volunteers and sanctuary sustainers. You can hear all the stories on today's program at mediasanctuary.org.
1: Up next, COVID crisis has prevented many students from attending school in person, resulting in a dramatic drop in participation in school meal programs. We talk with Jessica Pino Goodspeed of Hunger Solutions New York about next steps of child Nutrition Programs in New York with Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network.
2: Talking with Jessica Pino-Goodspeed, who is a child nutrition uh, specialist for Hunger Solutions of of New York. Um, We wanted to follow up and report out last week from the National Food Research and Action Center. We were talked about the issue that you know with the pandemic and so many schools being closed or at least going to virtual learning it's had a real uh, negative impact decrease in the number of students participating in the various child nutrition programs particularly school lunch and school uh, breakfast but uh, Jessica, why don't you just start off with a very you know a brief introduction what is uh, hunger solutions and what's a child nutrition specialist?
6: Great. Thanks for having me. Um, so Hunger Solutions New York is a statewide anti-hunger organization. Our mission is to alleviate hunger for New Yorkers by connecting them with federal nutrition assistance programs. So my role at Hunger Solutions New York is working on the child, federal child nutrition programs, particularly those in school time. So the National School Lunch Program, Breakfast Program, and CEP, a federal provision to offer free meals for all kids.
2: Now, what has been the response uh, in New York? I mean, how, how did one deal with this situation where, um, you know, a lot of students, perhaps the majority of students were not actually showing up at, at school? So how did one try to uh, access the various uh, school meal programs?
6: Right. So in New York, we have about two million kids in New York State who qualify for free and reduced price school meals. So as you can see, that's a huge nutrition resource for children around New York state. So when schools closed down in March of 2020, we saw this huge drop in um, both school breakfast and school lunch participation. And so that report that you mentioned from FRAC really opened our eyes to some data around what we had been hearing anecdotally around the state. So that that report included five large districts from New York State, Brentwood Union Free School down on Long Island, New York City Public Schools, um, Newburgh in large city school district, Rochester City School District, and Syracuse City School District. So that data showed overall in school breakfast a 63 percent decrease in school breakfast participation and a 75 percent decrease in lunch participation. So that's looking at those New York schools.
2: So um, probably no hard data. But you know, you know, what has been the impact of so many students um, not being able to to access these programs for an extended period of time, almost a year?
6: Absolutely. So um, again, right, there is no hard data, because we're in real time right now dealing with this crisis. But I feel like the most visual impact that people had over the summer and during that shutdown is seeing those lines and lines of cars of schools giving out food boxes. So those were grab-and-go meals that were allowable through federal waivers. Um, And many schools teamed up with their local food banks to offer packages for families who were really struggling, facing lots of unemployment, for decrease, or excuse me, increase in food insecurity for children in New York state, we're projecting that's about 57%. So that was, we were about at 17% in 2018 of kids in New York state who experienced food insecurity. And now we're expecting that to jump up to almost 27%. So that's a huge increase, um, mainly from the economic impacts of COVID, but also, families really losing access to this vital, uh, lifeline to nutrition.
2: Now you're the child nutrition specialist, but I know hunger solution does a lot of work on, uh, snap used to be food stamps. Um, do you have any information about how, you know, sort of the the food stamp program has been impacted, uh, during COVID?
6: Right. So, Again, the hard data is a little lagged behind, um, but we haven't seen in New York the uptake of SNAP participation that we would expect from these increases um, in food insecurity. So certainly our our assumption is that there's a lot of families out there who may be eligible for benefits and not connected. We're hoping that um, some of the reversal of the public charge rules with the current administration will help. Um, get rid of that chill effect of maybe that is um, causing some families not to apply, um, but also families who are newly in this situation with limited income, letting them know that these resources are available to them. So we do have nutrition outreach and education coordinators in many counties throughout New York State. Um, you can find those folks at foodhelpny.org. Um, those are basically navigators to help you get um, applied and find out if you're eligible. So that's definitely a great community resource for those needy families out there.
2: Yeah, as you may know, I worked for many years for the Hunger Action Network, which represents a lot of the state's food pantries and soup kitchens. And it always was sort of shocking to me uh, consistently over decades that only about half of the people at emergency food programs were in fact uh, receiving food stamps or SNAP benefits, even though almost all of them were income eligible. There may be other rules that it didn't qualify for, but almost all of them met the income eligibility rules. Now, one of the things that FRAC talks about in the report uh, is the idea that particularly try to to recover from the COVID um, pandemic that, you know, this Congress should be supportive of a concept of allowing um, free meals for all kids. Um, You know, what do you think about that proposal? And you know, is that being you know discussed, say, among um, anti-hunger leaders and congressional uh, members from New York?
6: Absolutely. So this is a top priority in the anti-hunger community nationally. So we have seen with these federal waivers, schools who have been unable to before offer free meals to every child in their community, especially as schools are closed. But every child who attends school, and so at a heightened time with Um, so much income inequality, so much unemployment, and also now emerging educational inequities um, that are really being exacerbated by this pandemic, Um, it's not a time to go back. Um, So this is really an opportunity to keep this barrier away from school meals and providing meals to all kids because many families are just above that income limit um, for free school meals. So, we're really urging Congress this year to take up child nutrition reauthorization, which reauthorizes all these federal programs, um, and consider um, offering free meals nationwide to all students. And if that's not possible, looking at it at a tiered approach. So, in New York State, we have the community eligibility provision. Many of our large districts offer free meals to all their kids through that provision due to high poverty. And what's interesting, and I'm glad we brought up SNAP, SNAP is what drives that. Um, program. So, the higher number of families who are participating in SNAP, um, the more financially viable that option is for school districts. So, I'd like to think little do families know that when they apply for SNAP and when they're participating in SNAP, they're actually helping their school district tap into some existing federal options that allow free meals for all kids. So a definitely a two-pronged approach could be happening here where we can expand under the current model but then congress can take some bold moves um, to expand free meals for all kids just like kids get books at school just like they get their bus rides for school they don't need to pay for those um, that school meals should just be a part of their education system
2: so we've been talking with jessica pino a Goodspeed child nutrition program specialist for hunger solutions new york so if we have any school board members listening or, or just, uh, you know, concern, you know, residents, you know, what, what what can people do at this point to address the issue of, uh, you know, child hunger and improving child nutrition in about 90 seconds?
6: Absolutely. So families and parents, people in the community can let families know to connect with their local districts, see what options are available to be able to pick up meals through the end of the school year into the summer months. Um, decision makers at school districts can if they're not already operating community eligibility provision can look at that as a feasible option um, to be able to continue universal meals free school meals for all kids into the next school year and those who have influence um, with their elected officials or want to engage with their elected officials to really take up um, this as a priority to provide free meals for all kids across the nation
2: and jessica um the uh website um, or Facebook for the hunger solutions, New York.
6: Great. So our, our website is hungersolutionsny.org. You can find information there. We have a lot of our legislative priorities there, but also connecting families to um, information about emergency resources right now, like pandemic EBT that um, is available to families through this year.
2: Well, thank you very much, Jessica uh, Pino-Goodspeed of the Hunger Solutions New York. And this has been uh, Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network. Hunger and child nutrition is an ongoing
0: problem. Thank you, Mark Dunley, for bringing us that amazing report.
1: Next, we have a segment from the ACT series, which was created by the students of the Spring 21 Art Community Technology Class at RPI. We will hear from Renee Panetta at the Recycling Project for the City of Troy. Student Dasha Surduk interviewed Panetta to discover more about how they strive to make our community more green.
7: This is Dasha Surduk interviewing Renee Panetta from the Troy Recycling Program. So Renee, what are the goals of your organization? What do you hope your impact is?
8: Um, so. We have a solid waste plan that has seven objectives to it. Um, we actually have them posted on my wall over there and on my whiteboard. Uh, so the, the, the seven objectives really have a lot of overlap with each other, but um, we reorganized them a bit because I felt that it was most important to do the education and the outreach first. So while we're still working on several of the other objectives, which this is a 10 year plan that we're walking into, Um, The education outreach component is going to have impact on all of the other objectives. So other, um, other ones range from increasing data collection, having clear collection procedures, creating a deconstruction permit, establishing an organics facility, establishing a recycling center, and a reuse center. So each of those objectives we are at different points on. Um, and again, so over the ten, the actually now the next nine year period of time is when those different aspects of it will be rolled out.
7: What do you think has been the greatest challenge in trying to achieve these objectives? Well, there's a bunch of them. So
8: in terms of uh, the global environment outside of COVID, which is an entirely different level, um, the fact that with National Sword and Blue Skies before that, there were more stringent requirements put on the amount of contamination that was allowed in the materials. And so it put the responsibility where it should be, which is back on the producers of the recycling materials being the resident. And then before that, the producers who are the manufacturers. And so there are some changes going on in that, but they're not keeping up with the needs of the industry. So the biggest issue and overall is that there's a high level of contamination, but part of that is also caused by the fact that um, people don't have the same access to the same information. So that's one of the things that we're working on equalizing as we do our outreach.
7: So who would you say is your most targeted group in the region of Troy?
8: I can't say that there is a most targeted group. I What I'd like to do is have it be less targeted as groups and more accessible to all. And so, um, what we're doing is creating an online platform that anyone who has the internet can have access to and we are able to mirror the information to print it out for anyone who doesn't have access to the internet um, we're also trying to go for a balance of um, graphic information and text information, uh, printed text information so that depending on the style somebody learns with that it makes it that much more accessible to that many more audiences Um, also creating some curricula so that it's accessible to younger students too
7: how is your um, organization typically funded
8: well it depends what part of the organization (laughs) so
7: um, the recycling
8: program is not at a cost to the city in terms of it uh, creating an expenditure because Troy is one of the only municipalities in the US probably that's paying zero for recycling itself. Um, we do pay for solid waste. So um, it's to our advantage to increase our recycling percentages, which we've been starting to do gradually and decrease the amount of solid waste that we're creating. So um, it is funded that, so the solid waste part of the equation, which is the sanitation department is funded by the uh, solid waste user fee, sanitation fee, and that's an annual fee. Um, my position, though, for example, um, it's half grant funded by the DEC, which is the Department of Environmental Conservation. Um, so there are offsets like that, um, like when we do our household hazardous waste day. That's also something that's 50% grant funded. So we try and uh, reduce the expenditures to the city as much as possible by trying to obtain as many grants as we possibly can.
7: Do you offer any volunteer opportunities? Oh, well, um, during COVID
8: there's less, but we still have a solid waste advisory board, which represents, um, all the districts within the city. And we have participants from that as well as, um, last year, we also added on participants from the three colleges from Hudson Valley, um, from uh, Saint, I'm sorry, from <laughs> Sage Colleges, and from RPI. So we have participants from all of the local entities. So those are ongoing volunteer opportunities, and we meet monthly. And then during non-COVID times, we also have opportunities for residents to get involved in any number of different types of projects. So once we go back to non-COVID environment, um, we'll go back to community meetings, we'll be giving out more materials. And uh, like, for example, I think I showed these the other day, we've got new bin stickers, we've got new magnets, and we've got bags. So those are things that are community information community generated. Um, one of our neighborhoods recently asked me if they could have some of the magnets anyway, because they're going door to door and flyering people. So. Um, You know, I think that there are some creative ways that we've done it and we will continue to do that with volunteers and we are working with lots of students. So um, looking at students as volunteers, we're doing a great deal of that even during COVID times because we're doing a lot of that via Zoom.
7: How has COVID impacted your organization? What have you had to do differently now?
8: Um, The number of sanitation workers in a truck has decreased. Uh, We stagger the shifts for the trucks or for the employees rather, so that depending on which route they're driving, it depends on what time they come in. Uh, providing gloves, providing masks, um, having to adapt when somebody is out on COVID leave, um, making sure that people have adequate hand sanitizer. So we're trying to do as much proactively as we can so we're less likely to have to be
7: reactive
8: after the fact.
7: Are you likely to do anything differently after COVID ends?
8: We've talked about that some. I think that what's going to happen differently as an organization is, uh, I think we're more well-versed in many technologies than we had been prior to COVID. And so having a presence even at neighborhood meetings and such that um, prior to COVID would not have had uh, something like a Zoom meeting going on simultaneously. Oh, offering things like that, I think, are where we're gonna see changes. But I think um, because it's such a community-based city, uh, people are so anxious to get back to in-person that when it's safe to do that, I think a lot of that piece of things is going to somewhat revert back to, to how it was in terms of the community building aspect of it. Um, I'm sure that there are going to be other changes that we'll see, but I think that will evolve as we get closer to knowing when that's going to be. (laughs) So I guess until we know when it's going to be, I I won't know what it looks like, really.
7: That's great. And finally, could you tell me about what your favorite part of working with this organization is or what your favorite memory is? Wow. Um, I really enjoy all of it, so...
8: Uh, you know, people probably think it's hysterical that my dream job is to be doing this in a city when I tell people I love my job, they're like, you do what and you love it? Really? Um, but to me, it's a great opportunity to have an impact on the positive choices that people can make and um help people to 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 put themselves in the mindset of I can do this for community, I can do it for the environment, or I can do it because there's fiscal advantage to me. And so kind of learning what makes people tick and which of those three characteristics is what their, their driver or their why is. I really love that about the job because people wind up having unlikely opinions about it. Um, you know, somebody who thinks that they're not at all invested in the environment may do something just because it benefits the community. And so it really, that, that's a very interesting, I don't know, just community building opportunity is to, to find out that piece. But I really love the opportunity to just work with the community and to get into the neighborhoods and to talk with people there.
7: That's a great perspective on it. Well, thank you so much, Renee. This concludes the interview. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: That was Renee Panetta from the Recycling Project for the City of Troy, speaking with student Dasha Sarik-Durik.
1: Unconditional love during a year filled with loss, isolation, and uncertainty. Many people have found great comfort in companionship of their pets. Since the outbreak of COVID-19, animal adoptions appear to be on the rise. And with many working from home, it might seem that our furry friends have got it made. However, with new restrictions on the way, veterinarians and pet shelters are currently operating. There are things to consider before adding a dog or cat to your family. Hudson Mohawk Magazine producer Jeremy Clow spoke with the Animal Protective Foundation in Glenville to learn more about how things have changed for pets during the pandemic.
9: The Animal Protected Foundation is a private nonprofit humane society providing pet sheltering, health care, and education, and support services to pet owners and their families here in the Capital Region. This year, the organization is actually celebrating its 90th year in operation. Wow. And I am very pleased to welcome the Foundation's Executive Director, Ms. Austin Gates. Uh, welcome, and thanks for taking time to speak with us.
10: Thank you. Glad to be here.
9: Now, it must be a bit of a tricky time. This is part of my interest in doing a piece here to learn more about how a shelter operates just in the past year, how everything has changed. Um, All of our lives have changed, and I'm sure that includes pets.
10: Yeah, yeah. So we've had to make some major changes. So, you know, typically, you know, somebody would be interested in adopting a pet and they would come to the shelter, walk around and pick one they were interested in and take them out for a walk or get to know them and adopt. So Now that's changed. We're doing Zoom calls with people to um, introduce them to the pet and make sure that, you know, just that initial uh, time that they see the pet that they're interested in and that they like them. And then we move to curbside and meet them here at the shelter and outside. The shelter is not open to the public right now, so... Um, so that has changed quite a bit, um, and I, you know we're we're lucky that our adoptions have still done really well. You know, mostly for the dogs. The cats are a little slower, so I want to make a plug for cats. Uh, cat adoptions. Um, we have one cat in particular right now. His name is Mo, and he's uh, he's been here a while. He's been here for over 150 days. So that's too long. So. <laughs> Um, So really, uh, the the virtual has been the biggest change and our volunteers, um, we had to stop having most of our volunteers come in. One couple of good things that have happened is that there seems to be fewer stray dogs during COVID. And uh, this is something that shelters around the country have experienced as well. So we think it's because there's more people home, working from home. And so they're keeping an eye on their dogs more. You know, the dogs are staying home. They're not getting loose and getting hit by car or, or uh, you know, injured. So so that's been a good thing. So there are some silver lining.
9: One thing I have thought about is uh, with pets' parents being home so much now, is that unusual and is that anything to be concerned about for pet owners? Because I mean, uh, in some cases, I'm sure a lot of people won't be home forever. They'll be returning to uh, their office spaces and things, and um, that'll be a shift for for uh, their pets.
10: Yeah, it will be. And you know, I have had some people share that concern with me because they've been working now for, you know, a year, eight months, you know, and their dogs, like my dogs, are right next to me at home. But and so when they do go back to work, it is going to be an adjustment uh, for the pet. Mostly, I mean, they're 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 amazing creatures. That they know what time it is. They know it, it's time for a walk. It's time for a treat. It's time to eat, and they get used to a schedule very easily. And um, then when that changes, it's hard on them. So I would encourage people to uh, reach out to our behavior program. Uh, we have a behavior hotline. If people have concerns, uh, we also have uh, virtual dog training classes that are going on right now and um, dog training is such a wonderful tool because it helps build confidence in your dog. We are their pack and when their pack is gone and for eight hours, it's, it's hard on them. So I encourage anybody that maybe has a little extra time right now to uh, sign up for some of our virtual classes and help their dog adjust uh, preemptively before they go back to the office.
9: And dogs in particular enjoy the company of other dogs. Um, uh, Do I understand the foundation is is still offering some opportunities for pups to to meet up and socialize?
10: Yes, yes. We actually have uh, some puppy classes going on right now. So you bring them in on a Saturday morning and the puppies can play with other puppies. And that is so important um, for puppies to learn how to be appropriate around other dogs.
9: On the other end of things, um, your shelter and others in the area um, offer some veterinarian services. Um, how is this type of thing um, affected by the new ways of operating for shelters and veterinarians?
10: Yeah, so we offer. Um, we have a spay neuter clinic at the shelter, and uh, so we had to close for a few months last year, and uh, you know, then ramping back up. But we are in full swing now. Uh, the only real difference, like I said, is it's you know curbside. You don't come into the clinic and and be there for the exam and the intake. you kind of we kind of do that outside now for everybody's protection. You know something that has affected our spay neuter clinic is funding. So last year and years before, we have our gala. It's our biggest fundraiser of the year, and uh, that typically raises money for our spay neuter clinic for to be able to offer subsidized low cost fees. And, um, you know, in years past, uh, in 2019, we raised $37,000 for our spray-neuter clinic. But last year, our gala had to be canceled, and uh, we replaced it with an online auction and trying to do some other creative things. But we only raised $6,700, so that was a $30,000 shortfall. Um, so we're trying to do some fundraisers to make up that so that we can continue to provide the low income uh, reduced fees. So that, that's our biggest challenge right now with our medical department is funding for the Spainator. We're We're ready and able to do it. We've got clients that are wanting our services. Um, we just need to make up that kind of that shortfall of donations.
9: Sure. And um, my understanding of the organization is uh, that you take great care for the animals uh, that are entrusted with your care. Now, um, to the extent of um, where parents need to um, actually make that difficult decision if they had an older dog to uh, euthanize, that's what my family is in the situation. We had had to put our uh, beloved dog Trixie down um, at right. the beginning of 2020. Uh, so before any of this happened and um, I first learned about the foundation through your Uh, bereavement support group, which was uh, fantastic. Um, And I've I've utilized that through the year for people who have to make this decision to euthanize at this time. It must be, uh, you know, just incredibly painful and and difficult to know how to manage that. Um, Is that something, a service that you guys offer? Yeah,
10: so we do offer that. And, you know, it's going to be the hardest time of a pet owner's life is when they have to say goodbye. And I'm sorry about Trixie. I'm sure you still miss but it is part of being a pet owner as being able to provide a a peaceful end for your pet when it's time. And we do offer uh, euthanasia services. Um, And then, like you said, these bereavement classes um, to help help process the loss. You know, uh, most pet owners know the big loss that it is, but sometimes people that are not, Uh, pet owners, they don't really understand. So there's not a kind of a normal outlet for uh, for the grief that you feel uh, with the loss of a pet. And um, so it's it's nice to be able to talk to other people that understand that and can help you through the grief. Um, So um, we're very proud to be able to offer that.
9: Great service. So I think we're kind of nearing the end here. Uh, Are there any other things you'd like to cover or things that pet owners or people considering adopting a pet at this time might want to consider?
10: So one thing I'd love to share is that uh, we're coming up to kitten season. Cats typically go into heat when the days start getting longer. So they are getting longer now. It's lighter, longer. So cats are going into heat and they're getting pregnant. Um, So, what happens then is you've got kittens and uh, for feral cats that have kittens, um, we and the shelter typically ends up with a lot of kittens and some of the kittens are without their mother and they need to be bottle fed. Um, It's a wonderful experience to do with your children or, you know, especially if you're working from home, you can have a little basket of kittens next to you and, and feed them throughout the day. So um, with our foster program, we provide the training, we provide the medical care, the support, the food, everything you need to take care of the animal. Um, and then you just provide the love and attention and feeding and cleaning and, and then bring them back and you can either find them a home, which is great, or you can bring them back to the shelter and we will find them a home. But it's an incredible opportunity to really tangibly save a life. Um, by fostering. And so I encourage anybody that's interested in that to go to our website. We've got a great website um, with our foster information and how to become a foster parent. So that would be a great thing to encourage someone to do now.
9: Wonderful. So there's still a number of ways to help out even during this uh, challenging time.
10: Absolutely. And it
9: means a lot for a pet. So thank you very much.
10: Thank you very much. I appreciate
2: the time.
9: Reporting for the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network. I'm Jeremy Clo. Oh.
0: That was Jeremy Clow. He spoke with Fa- Foundation Director of the Animal Protection Foundation in Grenville. That concludes our another episode of the Hudson Mohawk magazine. We hope you enjoyed it. And I'm Kalen.
1: In America, our engineer tonight is Cena Basilia Hickey. Tune in every weekday at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news. You can find all the stories on today's program at mediasanctuary.org and on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash WOC 105.3 FM.
0: This program is produced entirely by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute to the local stories of society, social, and environmental justice, email us at HMM at mediasanctuary.org or call 518-272-2390. And if, you are valid, if you need, and if you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. Until next time, folks, thanks for tuning in. Stay, stay safe.